0: Psalm 126, Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Luke, and we will be back there. Very much looking forward to chapter 7. I'm very grateful for what God did in and through uh, His Word in chapter 6. We'll be there next week, but this morning we're going to be in the book of Psalms 126. Six simple verses that have the power... To utterly change the way we relate to our wonderful, sovereign, heavenly Father. I love that turning. All right, let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we come before your word. And God, we, we recognize this morning, Lord, that this book that's before us, Lord, this living, breathing Word is unlike any other gift that we possess. And Father, the power that can come forth in six verses, Lord, is truly amazing. And So Lord, we need not go to some special place in Scripture. We need not go to some familiar place. We need not go to some... Verses that we all have memorized and, and repeat to one another. But God, we can open anywhere in this word. And we can find amazing truth and life-changing power. And so Lord, I pray you'd use this word today to minister in the hearts of this family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I often say to people that the greatest treasure that I possess on earth is my Bible. And I, whenever I say that, I'll oftentimes uh, get some strange looks from people. I know what they're thinking. I know what some of you are thinking. And that is that people would expect me to say that my greatest treasure on this earth is my wife, my children. And the reason why my Bible is my greatest treasure on this earth is because apart from my Bible, I would have no idea how to be a husband or a father. If it wasn't for the Word of God, I probably wouldn't have a family to treasure. The reason I treasure my wife and my children the way I do is because God has used His Word to transform me and to teach me how to relate to those I love. And often we overlook the value and the preciousness of the Word of God, especially in times of struggle. And you know, one of the greatest gifts in the Bible is the book of Psalms. The Psalms are about real life. The Psalms talk about your life and my life and our life together. Together. And that's why at a most difficult time like this, I think there's no better place for us to turn our hearts to than the book of Psalms. Now, the theme of the book of Psalms is really centered around the human predicament because it's so real, it's so raw, it's so human. It's it's just filled with this utter reality of human experience and the struggles that we face and the realization that there's something wrong with you and there's something wrong with me. And that if something doesn't intervene, if something doesn't change, it's going to end for all of us in death. And you see, the book of Psalms, it addresses this predicament that we're in by honestly presenting these these two central guideposts. There's two central sort of truths that, that center up around this human predicament and how... We are to relate to God and how we are to exist in God. And so these two tensions are, number one, the hardship of sin and suffering. You see, really, sin and suffering represent the rock and the hard place that we find ourselves stuck between every single day of our life apart from Christ. And so when we read the book of Psalms, we find the reality of that struggle. We find people wailing and weeping and suffering and moaning and grieving in the midst of sin and in the midst of suffering. But we also find the other guideposts, and that is the good news of the gospel. We find the hope of the Lord. We find a God who didn't just stand by, but who intervened, who got involved, who stepped in, who brought change, who brought hope. And that's what we find in the book of Psalms. And so what I want us to do is take a moment, look at this simple psalm and I want us to begin to see what life in a sovereign Lord is about. Like What what should you expect? How does this work? Because I realize that there are some of you in here today who fully grasp what I'm talking about. But there's a multitude in here today who know and love Jesus Christ but you are yet to truly Experience and comprehend the sovereignty of the God to which we serve. You see, when I say that God is sovereign, I mean that God is in control of all things. That there is nothing that goes beyond His control. That there is nothing that He doesn't know about. That there's not one thing that happens on this earth apart from His allowance. And you see, that's an easy thing to agree with, but that's a very difficult thing to live in. Because our hearts are bent towards joy. Our hearts want ease and comfort and celebrations and parades. We don't want pain. We don't want suffering. We don't want dismay. We don't want anguish. And so God's easily sovereign in the good days. But listen, God is sovereign as fire is hot. And if you don't learn the heat of fire, you will never be able to relate to it correctly. And the same thing's true for God. Until you grasp the, the realization of His sovereignty in our lives, You will be tossed to and fro. You will struggle for understanding. Your foundation will shake and be rattled. And so I pray today that God would use this to bring comfort and peace into our hearts. Let's talk about this new life in a sovereign God. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that we are to, in life in a sovereign God, we're to expect a greater joy. Now this is the easy part. The first three verses read... When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Now we don't know exactly what situation or circumstance the children of Israel are talking about. It's assumed it's probably the return of God's children from exile in Babylon. But really, that's irrelevant for this morning's message. What we need to understand is that, first of all, there is tremendous joy in the people of God in these first three verses. And the the issue is not... What is the situation that they're finding this joy in? The issue is, what is the source of the joy in which they find themselves in? And in the kingdom of God, you and I must expect greater joy. There is a joy in God that cannot be experienced apart from God. Therefore, don't miss the obvious point That in your life as a child of God, when you think back on the greatest joy that you've had, it's never pre-conversion. Have you ever thought about that? You see, the greatest times in your life never happened before you got saved. Do you know why? Because once conversion comes, once God transforms our heart, joy is increased. You and I experience a joy that apart from Him we could not ever hope to experience. Now, the children of Israel are literally, they, they speak of themselves as those who dream. In other words, it's like living a dream. Life is so good, I can't even believe how good life is. This is so amazing. I, we don't even have words to explain it. And they are they're singing and they're laughing and they're filled with joy. And let me ask you a question. Isn't it interesting that in all of recorded history, in all the recorded history of the Bible, there's not one single indication of joy and triumph in the lives of the children of Israel or the lives of the people of earth prior to God's intervention. In other words, why doesn't history tell about these great, joyous, wonderful, unbelievable triumphs prior to? You know why? Because they weren't. Because apart from God, you just exist. Oh, certainly there's good times. All of us can remember before we got saved. We had times that we we didn't just mope all the time. I mean, I laughed. I had great experiences. I saw great things. I did wonderful things. But now I look back on them and think, compared to now, they're nothing. You see, we need to understand that life in a sovereign God is expecting a greater joy. I think about the day, the night that I baptized my two children. And I just think, I don't know that there could be a better day than that for me. I don't think about the things I did in the places I went when I was young and apart from Christ. And I... They have no eternal value. I think about those of you in this room that, that I was, I was there. I was holding you as you prayed Christ into your heart. I think about things that change eternity forever, not just flippant moments in time and, and some little fleeting joy and some meaningless good fortune. You see, there's a greater joy. There's an intensity in our joy. That when you read the reality, these are real people celebrating real triumph in a real God who delivered them from real bondage. Just like you and me. Just like us. And apart from Him, what would we be doing this morning? Well, what would our lives be about? Good gracious. How we... Underestimate the sovereignty of God in joy, but that's the easy part. Look with me at verse four. Verse four says, "Restore our fortunes, O Lord, as the stream in the south or the Negeb or the desert." This word "south" is referring to this desert, the Negeb. The second thing I want you to see is that we're not only to expect a greater joy, but we're to embrace a deeper sorrow see, here's where it gets complicated. Here's where oftentimes we come to Christ and we expect the greater joy and we want to receive the greater joy, but it's the deeper sorrow that sort of overwhelms us. That's where we start to get a little uh, uncertain. And that's where the doubts come in. And that's where we get a little unsure. And that's where we lack understanding. And One of the greatest moments in my life as a believer was when I reached the pinnacle of the mountain of God's sovereignty in my understanding. You see, because at salvation you don't get this. You, you have to, you have to live this. You, you have to, you have to read the Word of God. You have to listen diligently to biblical preaching. You have to observe the lives around you. This doesn't just, just drop out of the sky upon you. There's this myth in Christianity that, that sounds like this. If I am good, God's not gonna let anything really bad happen to me. You see, and it, it, that sounds good in the flesh. It seems like it ought to be true. But it's not. It's absolutely unbiblical and it is absolutely against the character and nature of the God that we serve. And I know that there are some of you in this room that don't understand this. And my prayer is that this morning God will give you ears to hear and that you will see that when you believe this, it will cause you to fall into all sorts of theological error when suffering comes into your life when someone that you worship with when someone that you love when someone that you pray with when someone that you grow with and walk with and talk with takes their own life you will be shattered your faith will crumble you will have no understanding as to how this is possible you you begin to wonder god how could you let this happen Have you left us? Have you forgotten us? Have you missed this? Well, let me first draw your attention to something here that you might have missed. I want you to notice that the joy is verse one, verse two, verse three. And then immediately in verse four, there's no three and a half, three and three quarters, three and five eighths. It just goes straight to verse four. And in verse four, suddenly it's, Oh God, restore our fortune. Oh God, bring back what we had. Oh God, now we're in the wilderness, we're in the desert. In other words, there's no break between the immense joy of verse 1, 2, and 3 and the pain, suffering, and need in verse 4. What happened? Now let me tell you what's not there. What's not there is there's no repentance of the people of God. That's what's not there. And that's very important for you to know. You see, because you don't see in the Bible the people of God repenting. God, we're so sorry for what we've done. God, we've, we're gonna burn all our idols. We're gonna, we're gonna put away all the false things that we've been doing. God, we, we've gotten away from you. God, we're sorry for that. So now, God, will you restore to us? Will you get us out of the desert? You don't see that. You know why you don't see that? Cause it's not there. Because sometimes great joy goes to great sorrow just like that because God says so. It doesn't have to be sin. Don't fall into the trap of going, well, well. why did this happen? Well, what did they do wrong? Well, they must have sinned. Well, they must have done that. There must be a reason. Well, Jesus, why is this man blind? Has he sinned? Has his father sinned? No, for the glory of God, because God is sovereign. He's in control. Be very careful about what you read into God that He doesn't put into Himself. There's a million places in Scripture where you see repentance, where you see the people of God coming before Him and professing all the error and all the mistakes and all the transgression, but you don't see it here. You go straight from immense joy to sorrow and need and drought and famine in the desert. Why? Because God's sovereign. Because Christians, as much as they should expect great joy, should expect deeper sorrow. You as a believer, just as much as you'll experience things in Christ that are so much greater than you ever could have experienced apart from Him, your sorrow is going to be far greater walking as a believer than it's going to be walking as a lost man or woman. Do you know why that is? Because the Bible says that salvation, Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God was poured into our hearts. Now let me ask you a question. If God supernaturally pours His love into my heart at salvation and into your heart at salvation, is there any possible chance that you're going to become less caring, less grieving, that, that somehow injustice and sin are going to be less effective upon you? No. No. You see, the more you walk with Christ, the closer you come with Him, the greater your sorrow and burden will be. The more you'll understand the plight of sin and the wickedness of death and the horror of injustice. Where are the churches that say, in Christ sometimes it gets tougher? It doesn't always get better. Where is the preacher on TV who will stop peddling his goods and selling his trinkets and tell the people of God the truth about him? He's a sovereign God, and in him we must embrace. A deeper sorrow. That's the way it happens. And listen, it's not just because we live in a world filled with sin. Though that's part of it. It's because a redeemed heart has a capacity to love that an unregenerate man or woman has utterly no hope of ever attaining. You see, one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is in your weeping. Now, the interesting thing is that there's so many things that I will say this morning that I have said in the past three or four weeks, never knowing that it was going to be called to account. You see, the Word of God, is, it, it plays a role in our life. It's not for our entertainment. It's not, it's not for us to come and listen to and say, oh, isn't that nice? It's for us to respond to. And so when the Word of God comes before us and it says that we are to mourn, we are to weep over sin, we are to grieve, God's trying to tell us something. Sin's not a joke. Sin's very real. Suffering is very real. You know, before you were a Christian, before I was a Christian... We had no idea what the people around us could be. Do you know that? In other words, I never met people apart from Christ and I thought, you know, you could really be something someday. Man, you could, God could use you or you could make a difference in the world. But now with new eyes, everywhere I go, people I meet, you, I talk to you, I look at you, and I just say, look at what God's doing with you. Think of what God could do with you. I mean, every time people receive Christ, every time people are born again to a new hope, I think, what will God do with them? Wow! Because, see, you see with new eyes. You realize that there's there's more at stake here than what we can just see. That And, and, and when that's rejected, and when that is thwarted, and when that stops, it causes us to weep. You see, when I I drive by the abortion clinic, the reason I weep is because I understand what God does in creation. And I think about all the lives that were squandered. And I think about what they could have done and who they could have been. And that's why I grieve. It's a greater grief. But you see, really, when it comes down to it, it's about our hearts looking like Jesus, isn't it? And, and what exactly did Jesus' heart look like? Well, it was a perfect heart, but Isaiah 53 says that He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So our sorrow will undoubtedly be deeper, So this notion that if I walk in obedience, God won't allow bad things to happen to me, that every time something bad comes into your life, you're thinking, where did I go wrong? Where did I miss it? Did I not read my Bible enough? Did I not pray enough? Did I not do this enough? Did I not do that enough? Well, let me ask you a question. How perfect was the obedience of Christ? Perfect. 100% perfect. And let me ask you this. How bad is what was allowed to come into His life compared to what's in your life and my life. In other words, doesn't the mere testimony of the Lord Jesus just shatter the myth of performance-based love? Listen, this isn't some kind of carnival game where you see how good you can obey and God's going to see how much you're going to win. No. This is a sovereign God who reigns and rules over all of the universe. He is in charge of everything. And when He deems it's time for you and I to suffer, what we need to do is ask the question, why? Why, God? What is it in this that we need to see? Why must we expect tears and sorrow? Why must they be an essential part of every life that longs to look like Jesus? You see, this matters so much. Because if you come to Christ and you wrongly think that He's going to grant you this life that's free of tears, what happens when the tears come? You see, you you, you build your house on the sand. And you're unable to see the love of the Savior that says the storm is on the horizon. Did I know it was three days away? No. But I knew it was on the horizon because the Bible tells me so. How many... False conversions are exposed through tears. Someone comes forward, they make a profession. Initially, there's this joy and there's this excitement and and suddenly things are going to be good and they're going to be wonderful. And then tears come and then the questions come. God, why with me? Well, I, I did something for you. I mean, I came forward. I filled out a card. I joined the church. I mean, I did all these things and now I'm suffering. I'm struggling. I mean, why is this? Haven't I been good enough? What do I need to do to straighten this out? Why are you mad at me? Why are you angry at me? Maybe it didn't count. Maybe I need to do it again. Maybe I need to try harder. Maybe this, maybe that. Jesus says, no, the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, endures for a while, but when tribulation and persecution arises, on account of the Word, he immediately falls away. The Bible is crystal clear. Only the house on the rock shall stand. That house must expect a greater joy, embrace a deeper sorrow, and understand a bigger picture. Verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless once again come with rejoicing, bringing the sheaves with Him. Oh, what a glorious passage. I've asked myself over and over, God, would I make it through this week apart from this where I just absolutely love the Word of God, what it does to my heart, how it carries me how it guides me, how it directs me. I don't need a psychiatrist. I don't need to go read some other book. I don't need to go looking somewhere or stare up at the sky or do any other. I just need to sit down, get quiet, open the Word of God and say, Help me, Lord. Show me, God. And God says, Those who sow in tears, they will reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless Come again with rejoicing, bringing sheaves with him. What are these seeds? Real quickly. Seeds, any kind of seeds. They're never intended to be stored in a sack, put up in a room, kept in a barn. They're intended, they're never intended to be dumped out into one big pile. Seeds must be sown to produce a harvest. The Bible talks about seeds in relation to the Word of God all the time. In 1 Peter 1, verse 23, the Bible says, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible By the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. This seed, it's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. It's His truth. It's Jesus Christ incarnate on earth. The Word of God living and breathing among us. This is the incorruptible seed that's planted within the believer at conversion. That you are now grafted into the body of Christ and that you have the Spirit of God within you to minister to you, to help you, to support you, to lead you, to guide you. These seeds are so critical because from these seeds spring forth life everlasting. These aren't just any seeds that you can go down to your local feed store and pick up. These are seeds of eternal consequence. When they hit soil of repentance, when they set roots in the ground, when these seeds begin to spring up and when they begin to grow strong, they're impervious to anything that the devil, this world or anyone else can bring against them. There's no storm that can blow this tree down. There's no disease that can get in this tree. You will live forever. This seed is incorruptible. It's undefeatable. It's 100% guaranteed that when it is sown in tears and love and soil of repentance, it will always always, always, always reap joy joy that 's what this seed reaps, but there 's tears in the sowing. so why are these seeds sown in tears? Well, you know that if you 're saved this morning. I know that because i 'm saved this morning because we didn't we didn 't come waltzing into the gospel in a parade. We didn't, come, we didn't come careening up to Christ rejoicing that the gospel, this seed took birth. It took root. It was planted into your heart and my heart in repentance and sorrow, in brokenness, in destitute situations and circumstances, in the reality that your way would never work. My way would never work. You see, the seed never takes root. Apart from tears, apart from breaking, apart from the reality that apart from Christ there's no other hope. You see, you can come all day and you can just you can make professions from now until a cow jumps over the moon about how you're going to add Christ to what you're doing, how He's going to make you better, how it's going to enhance your life, and it will yield zero. These seeds must be sown in tears. Now, I don't know about you, But my tear ducts are empty right now. i got none left. I've cried until my eyes swole shut. God, why? Why tears, Lord? Because that's how Jesus sowed seeds. The book of Hebrews says this, in the days of His flesh, speaking of Jesus, He offered up prayers and supplications. And how did He do this? With loud cries and tears. To Him who is able to save Him from death, not from the cross, but from death. To Him who is able to bring Him back from the cross. That's what this verse is referring to. And He, Jesus, was heard because of His reverence. Now, now I... I I would love to spend three hours with you this morning on just this passage of scripture right here. Don't panic. I'm not, but I want to. I want you to understand something about God. I want you to understand when you open the book of Hebrews and you read a, a verse like this and it's talking about Jesus who prayed in loud cries and tears. And then he pleaded, he pleaded with the heavenly father to save him from death. And the Bible says he was heard. And to the untrained eye, to the person who doesn't understand the sovereignty of God, they would say, well, that's not right. Because He died. And that's where you're wrong. Because He rose. You see, that prayer was heard and He rose. And so when you think about your brother Roy, when you think about the condition he's in right now, don't you dare think, well, that's no good, God. That doesn't work because He died. Because I'm here to tell you, He rose. He rose. The very next verse says, although Jesus was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Paul sowed seeds. He sowed seeds to unrepentant people like the Corinthians. And he sowed every one of them in tears. He wrote this, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with tears. Now, let me ask you a question. What came first in Paul's life? Did Paul sit down to write a letter and start crying? Or was Paul in anguish and tears and then was moved to write a letter? You see? It's very important. Don't ever think that your sorrow as a believer is just for nothing. That somehow God is some some psychotic ruler who gets some joy out of watching you suffer. No. No. The believer who suffers, suffers for a purpose. The Bible declares it on every single page. You see, not all sowing is guaranteed a harvest. But that which is sown in tears is. That which is sown in tears is. This morning, Michael Memorial... Your tears are not in vain. The weeping of the past four days is not for nothing. These tears are intended They're intended to be used to plant seeds of salvation in others. They're intended to be used to plant seeds of growth and fruitfulness in us. They're intended to be used by a sovereign, mighty, holy God who desires for us to look like Him. They are not to be wasted. They're not to be squandered. They're to be sown. They're to be planted. I'm going to give you two practical applications of this passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you two ways that you can be a sower of your tears. Now, I realize that in this limited amount of time, I want to spend 30 minutes talking to those of you in the room that don't cry. Because there's a problem there. I used to boast as a lost man about how my tear ducts were dried up. I went decades without shedding one tear. I go to funerals of people I cared about. No tears. Now... I can't even read a nursery rhyme without crying. I bawl like a baby every time I watch extreme home makeover. They move the bus, I'm wailing. <laughs> but I'm going to speak to you two simple ways as if you were a spirit-filled believer. Believer who weeps tears of grief. And I know that this room is filled with many wonderful, godly people who have wept over many things and in the past few days have wept excruciatingly for the children's family. Number one, let's invest our tears in prayer. Let's invest them in prayer. This psalm that we're studying this morning, Psalm 126 it 's a psalm of prayer it's it 's a psalm of recounting to God what 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 predicament we 're in what God has done it's a prayer realizing that God understands the weeping condition that we're in or the joyous condition that we're in and the problem with us is is that we want to push away from God in our time of uncertainty in our time of anguish we want to back away from God because we're not sure we understand what's going on and therefore we resist coming to the throne of prayer because we don't know what to pray and that is an utterly foolish mistake Listen, when you don't know what to do and you don't know what to pray is when you ought to be on your face before God. You see, that's what prayer is. Prayer is your refuge in trouble. Listen to the words of David in Psalm 39. Most psalms will end with rejoicing and with glory and with happiness though they're filled with all sorts of struggle and pain. And so they tell the story of how the pain comes and then repentance comes and how restoration comes. But you know what? The Bible's real. Sometimes there's just stuff in here that's just wrong. It just ought not be here. Psalm 39 ends this way. David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears for I am a stranger with you, he says. I'm a sojourner As all my fathers were. Now he's really, he's telling God, I'm the way my fathers used to be. I'm as if people who never knew you are. Remove your gaze from me, he says, that I might regain strength before I go away and am no more. David ends the psalm by saying, God, if you would just turn your face from me, if you would just forget that I ever existed, if you would just leave me alone and go away, I would at least have some peace before I die and am no more. Over. Now let me ask you a question. Why in the world is this in the Bible? Why would God put that? in? That's just wrong. It's theologically wrong. But it's in the Bible. Why? I'll tell you why. It's in the Bible so that every single one of us this morning would understand that God says when you don't know what to pray, when you say the wrong things, when you cry out in, in error and craziness and anger and frustration, He says, bring it. I want to hear it. It's okay. I know you. I made you. You don't need to be afraid to me. You can pour your heart out to God. You can pour your heart out to Him when you don't know what you're talking about. Pour it out. That's why that psalm's there. To remind you and me that we don't need to have these pretty, schemed up, drawn out prayers. That sometimes it's just blubbering and yelling and weeping and begging and moaning and groaning and saying things we regret later. It's okay. God is a big God. He's a sovereign God. He can handle Handle it. We got to sow our tears in prayer. When you find yourself weeping, go to the one who will hear your heart. God wants you to know it's safe to come to Him. When nothing else is safe, it's safe to come to Him in prayer. Second practical application. Let's redeem our tears in the promise of the cross. You see, verse 6 says, He who continually goes forth in weeping shall... He's bearing seed for sowing, but he shall doubtless... It doesn't say that He might come again with rejoicing. It's possible it could lead to rejoicing. Every once in a while there's rejoicing. It says it shall doubtless happen. When we sow tears in pain and in grief and in agony to the Lord, when we come before Him, He turns our weeping and our mourning into dancing. That at the end of the darkness, the light bursts forth in mourning. That on the other side of the storm, in the other end of the valley, whatever it is we find ourselves in, we need to take these tears and we need to remember the guaranteed, sure promise of the cross of Christ. You see, that's where these tears need to be planted when you don't know what else to do and you don't know what else to... To, to turn to and you're at the end of your rope and you don't understand. I just crawl up to the foot of the cross and I just lay my head down at that cross and I just weep there. Because that's the only thing in this world I know for sure is true. You see, I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I have no idea what the next storm over the horizon is, but I know this. That cross tells me that Jesus Christ died for my sin and I will live forever. And that I know. I know that. So I don't need to know anything else. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says it was the cross. It was the cross that reminds us that Christ died for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ became sin for us on the cross and that we are now the righteousness of God in Him. Galatians 3.13 says that the cross, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That we'd no longer be under the law. Because Romans 6 says... That we now live free from sin. Romans six nine says death no longer has dominion over us because of the cross. Romans six eleven says, because of the cross we now live unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.1 says because of the cross, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians five nine says we are not appointed unto wrath because of the cross, but now we've obtained salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says that the cross Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example in Himself that we should follow in His footsteps. 1 Peter 2.24 says it was the cross. It was the cross that proved... By His stripes we are healed. First John two one says, because of the cross, we have an advocate in the fa- to the Father in Jesus Christ. First John two two says, at the cross He became the propitiation of our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. First John four nine says, at the cross was manifest the love of God towards us. First John five four says, because of the cross, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. First Thessalonians four seventeen says. It is He who is coming again to retrieve us, His people. Revelation two seven says that because of the cross, we will eat from the tree of life and dwell in the paradise of God. Revelation twelve nine says that Satan will be defeated once and for all because of the cross. Revelation twenty one two says that all things are going to be made new. Because of the cross. Revelation twenty one four says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There will be no more pain because of the cross. Revelation two four twenty two four says that because of the cross we will see him face to face. Revelation twenty two five says that we will be with him forever because of the work he performed on the cross. Revelation 22, twenty two twenty says that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that He is coming, and He's not only coming, but He's coming quickly. And until that day, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will rest upon His people, all because of the cross. Where else are you going to turn when you need something? Who else are you going to look to? It's the cross that reminds us in any circumstance, in any situation, there's always hope. There's always hope. Don't waste your tears Pray in your grief, weep at the cross. Let God heal you. Let God transform you. Let God remind you of His sovereignty. Let God put a new, a new understanding in your mind of the reality of the war that we face every day. But for the grace of God, every single person in this room will be right where Roy is Listen. This is not some just namby-pamby, simple little run-through-life scenario where we're all part of the club called Christianity. We're soldiers of that cross. We're in a war against Satan and evil. And though the victory is won, the battle rages on. And there are people that you know and that I know that are asking questions, and they don't understand. Sow your seeds in tears for the lost that you know. Understand the truth of the God that you serve. Let God grow you in your understanding of His sovereignty. Let God take you to places that my mere words could never take you. You sow your seeds in tears. Through prayers at the cross. And watch what God does. See, he's not just good because he does good things. He's good because that's who he is. And lest your faith be shaken, lest your heart tremble, our God is a sovereign God, and his word rises above. All the uncertainties of this life. Now, may God use His Word to bring salvation into the lives of the people in this room who are apart from Him. There are some of you in this room, the, the literal concept of weeping over somebody else's condition or circumstances is utterly foreign to you because your heart is not redeemed. There are some of you in this room, you play Christianity every single Sunday. And this week, your faith has been rattled. Your foundation has been exposed. This morning, you can bring all of that to the cross. And you can be born again to a living hope, an incorruptible seed that's imperishable that will live forever. For the rest of us, we we need to redeem our tears. We need to bring our grief to the Lord. And we need to ask Him to grant understanding, to empower us, to grow us, to shape us, and to mold us. Thank Him for the inexpressible joy that we have in Him and embrace the greater sorrow that comes with a new, regenerate heart of flesh. That's what I believe God would have us to do this morning. Michael Memorial, your tears have not been in vain. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father we bow before you lord and god we we bring our our trials and our struggles lord we bring our pain and our our agony and our bewilderment. Lord, we bring all of the what-ifs before You, God, and we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus Christ who walked and lived upon this earth, who was Your Word incarnate, embodied as he, as he moved and as He breathed and as He lived on this very earth, as He made this Word of God the reality that it is, that this morning, God, there is hope because of Him and His work at the cross. So, Father, I pray for those in this room who don't know You, Lord, as Savior. I pray for those in this room, Lord, that this morning they're going to receive You as Savior. Father, You are calling them right now. Their heart is beating. Their hands are sweating. Lord, their mind is filled with a thousand excuses as to why not to come. But Father, if ever there was a day where I could honestly say, I don't know if this is your last chance. I don't know if you'll get a tomorrow. But I know that right now you have a today. And this is the day of salvation. Lord, will you call your saints to come and bring their tears to the altar, Lord? Will you call your people, God, in the remembrance, Lord, that their weeping does not go unnoticed from you, that their sorrow is intended for good from you. And that, Lord, truly, truly, truly all things work together for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Father, we thank you. We ask you to heal us now, speak to us, save us, minister to us, work in us as only you can. In Jesus' name. The altar's open, you come.